the last several weeks we've heard in the divine office the laments and the warnings of the prophets. And we've been reminded each Sunday, ego cogito cogitationis pacis. Thus says the Lord, I think thoughts of peace and not of affliction. You shall call upon me and I shall hear you. And I shall bring back your captivity from all places. These words are given to us as the context in which to understand everything that the prophets are telling us, everything that the prophets are describing in their own time and in the times that they're foreseeing. And in this final week after Pentecost, we conclude the reading of the books of the minor prophets, one of which we'll hear every day in Matins. And at the same time, we're given today the great prophetic discourse of our Lord himself, directed by the Lord himself to look ahead to the end of all things. It is a most difficult text to understand, a most difficult text to preach on. There's far more that can be said about it than I would be able to say here. But the first thing that strikes me anyway is that this too must be read in the light of the words given to us in the introit. I think thoughts of peace and not of affliction. You will call me and I will graciously hear you and I will bring back your captivity from all places. The church wants to remind us that everything we're about to hear our Lord say is told to us by one who thinks thoughts of peace and not of affliction, by one whose desire is to hear our prayers and to bring us back from captivity. And those thoughts of peace are spelled out for us by St. Paul as he tells us that we are to constantly give thanks to God the Father who has made us worthy to have a participation of the lot of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is the fundamental truth, the fundamental thought of peace that God thinks about us, and it's in the light of this thought of peace that we are to hear everything that follows. Having heard these words from St. Paul, we sang in the gradual, Thou hast delivered us, O Lord, from those who afflicted us, that is to say, from the power of darkness. Thou hast confounded those who hate us. All the powers of sin and death, the power of the devil ranged against our souls. In God we shall be praised all the day, and we shall give thanks in thy name forever. Already we are giving thanks for what God has done for us, in the redemption wrought in his Son. But we go on in the Alleluia to make it clear that we're still in a valley of tears. From the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord. O Lord, graciously hear my prayer. We know that we've been delivered from the power of darkness, but we're still in a valley of tears. We're still in the depths. and We're crying out for redemption. And this cry prepares us to listen to our Lord's words about the trials to come. He begins with this famous warning about the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And the abomination of desolation was a phrase used in the time of the Maccabees to refer to the defilement of the temple by the Greeks and by those Jews who colluded with them to introduce pagan ways into the chosen people. The same phrase is used by the prophet Daniel, speaking not just about what the Greeks did in the time of the Maccabees, but about what would happen after the 70 weeks of years were completed, a prophecy which 
our Lord understands to be yet to be fulfilled, and which many see as being fulfilled in at least a partial way in the destruction of the temple, the erection of a Roman idol on the holy place in which the temple had stood. But as with many prophecies, it's hard at times to tell what exactly our Lord is speaking about that's to take place in a few decades with the destruction of Jerusalem and what things he's speaking about that are to happen much farther into the future at the end of time. Some have said it's as if one is looking at a range of mountains far off and it's hard to see sometimes how much distance there is between one row of mountains and another, mount another row of mountains beyond it. These prophecies direct our attention to these things on the horizon. And we can't always determine the specific reference of them, but all of it is written for our instruction. We're told that by the Apostle, that all that is written is for our instruction, so that through the consolation of the Scriptures we might have hope. And so all of these words are written for us, even if some of them might have been fulfilled in at least a partial way in 70 AD, all of these things still speak to us, speak to the church in every age. Because the church always has to be on the lookout for these signs of the times. The abomination of desolation standing in the holy place is something that the church has endured in partial ways many times throughout history. St. Jerome in the reading at Matins spoke of heresies being an abomination of desolation. In the various times when Heresies have been embraced by many in the church, even by pastors in the church, and taught in a way that confused the faithful and led them astray. This is indeed the abomination of desolation in the holy place. Immorality among the church's ministers who are entrusted with the holy things. Sacrilege committed against the most blessed sacrament. A lack of reverence towards the holiest things that our Lord has given to us. What are these but an abomination of desolation standing in the holy place? And there are certainly such things and others besides that are not absent in our own day. And so the words of our Lord about the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place should certainly make us be attentive and on the watch for the things that he describes, whether the consummation of all of it is to happen very soon or whether that's still further in the future. These words are written for us. And what are we to do? Those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. Flee to the mountains. Who are the mountains? The fathers, at least at times, interpret the mountains to be referring to the saints. The saints are the mountains to whom we can flee in the times of tribulation. We flee to the mountains, to a higher ground, to a place closer to God. We flee from the things below, the things of this world, to take refuge in the presence of God and his saints. Let the one who is on the roof not go down to get anything from his house. Let the one who is in the field not go back to take his tunic. In other words, don't cling to the comforts of this life. Don't cling to the familiar things of home, to one's tunic, one's possessions, whatever is nearest and dearest to us. We must be willing to let these things go. 
and to run to the mountains, to run to the presence of God, as we see all things passing away, we must cling to God all the more tenaciously. And then we're given a word of assurance. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But because of the elect, those days will be shortened. God shortens the trials for the sake of his chosen ones. God is constantly attentive to the weakness, the infirmities of his children, and so even these trials of the last days are to be shortened for the sake of those who he has chosen, because he will never allow us to be tried beyond our strength. Our Lord goes on to give more words of warning. Don't be deceived by those who say, here is the Christ, there is the Christ. False Christs, false prophets will arise. Accept no substitute, he says. And this is uh, a sobering word of warning to be on the watch, to be careful not to be deceived. And at the same time, it's a reminder that the true Christ is so much better than all of the counterfeits that might be on offer. But how is he to be recognized? He says his coming will be unmistakable. It will appear from the east to the west like the lightning. And how will it be recognized? After those days of tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give her light, the stars will fall from heaven. All the created sources of light will fail. All the things that we might look to in this world to give us light will be darkened. And what will remain? Then there will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. We heard a few months ago on the 14th of September what this sign will be. The liturgy that day repeated over and over, Oxinium crucis erit in celo, cum dominus adjudicandum venerit. This sign of the cross will be in heaven when the Lord comes to judge. The sign of the cross will appear, and this is what will ultimately prove the coming of our Lord against all of the false prophets. The false prophets come giving great signs and wonders so that they can deceive even the elect. What the false prophets don't have is the sign of the cross. And it is by the sign of the cross that the coming of our Lord is always recognized in every age, as it will be the great sign of his coming at the end of time. The story is told of, I think, a Russian saint, perhaps, who had a vision in which the devil appeared to him pretending to be our Lord, and the saint on his guard, not to be deceived, said, where are the nails? Where are the marks of the nails? The devil could counterfeit many things, but he forgot that our Lord is known by the marks of the nails, by the marks of what he suffered upon the cross for us. And it is this that allows the faithful to recognize the coming of our Lord. The false Christs lack the sign of the cross. And then, all of the nations of the earth will weep, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and majesty. He will send his angels with a trumpet and with a great cry. We hear this depicted in the Dies Irae, and it will indeed be a Dies Irae, a day of wrath, a day of terror. No human creature can Think of standing before the face of God without a shudder of fear going through him. And yet at the same time, there is the ultimate word of consolation. 
was what will the angels do? They will gather his elect from the four winds, from the heights of heaven, even unto the ends of them. In other words, the angels will fulfill the promise that was spoken in the introit. I will bring back your captivity from all places. When the Son of Man comes, the angels will gather the elect from the four winds, and all of the places in which God's people have been scattered, he will finally bring them together. He will reestablish the unity of the human family that was disrupted, first by the sin of our first parents, and then later at the Tower of Babel. He will bring them all together from the four winds. And this is what we're longing for, this is what we're waiting for. This is what God has promised to do. And finally, the Son of Man will come with the clouds and send his angels to do just that. And so this prophetic discourse of our Lord, while it is certainly sobering, while it tells us of the trials to come and of the dangers that we have to watch out for, is ultimately the great message of hope. It is what we're longing for. It's what we're living for. It's what our eyes must always be fixed upon. The desire to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, to be gathered together with all of his elect. The trials which preceded are inevitable because the old world, marked by sin and death, cannot pass away, or rather, the new creation cannot come until the old world has passed away. And therefore, the coming of our Lord's kingdom has to be marked by the sign of the cross. Just as his death preceded his resurrection, so the death of the world as we know it, the present creation, must precede its regeneration in the coming of the Son of Man in his glory. All of these things must come to pass, but the days will be shortened for the sake of the elect. And finally they will see him coming, and they will be gathered together by him. Our Lord ends by telling us that while heaven and earth will pass away, his words will not pass away. That they are the one thing that we can cling to when all else seems to be failing. When the sun is darkened, when the moon does not give light, when the stars are shaken, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. When heaven and earth pass away, his words will not pass away. And already, here upon the altar, we are given the pledge of his words not passing away. We are given the anticipation of what he's described. Already upon the altar, we see the Son of Man, the same one whom we will see coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and majesty. We see coming with great lowliness, with great humility. But the same Son of Man appears. And the same sign, the sign of the cross which will appear in heaven, is set before us upon the altar as our Lord's sacrifice on the cross is made present in an unbloody manner through the consecration of the bread and the wine into his body and blood. His sign is set before us, and he comes in a hidden way who will come one day on the clouds of heaven. As we come forward to receive him, already he begins to gather together his elect from the four winds to unite them to himself sacramentally. He tells us, Amen, I say to you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you shall receive and it shall be done to you. And he tells us also, Amen, I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let us cling to these words of his amid 
the trials of the church, the trials of the world, the trials of our own families, of our own community. Amid all of these things, our Lord is preparing the new creation, which will not pass away. A new creation which will only come under the sign of the cross, but the new creation for which we are longing, and of which we have his promise, that he will hear our prayers and bring back our captivity from all places.